Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Cut the Shit, a podcast series that aims to take a closer look at the impact of the IT industry, both the good and the bad. Cut the Shit is brought to you by Plow Networks, a managed IT services company based just outside Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Brian Link, EVP of Products and Services here at Plow, and I'll be your host for this series. I'll ask questions, and with the help of our guests, try to dig deep on some of the key challenges we all face dealing with IT. So with that, let's cut the shit and get started. On today's episode, I'm pleased to have Jody Elkins as our guest. Jody is president of the Americas for Incentra, an Australian-based company that provides professional and managed tech services exclusively through IT channel partners like Plow. To be clear, Incentra is a partner of ours. Before joining Incentra, Jody had a successful career as a CIO in the medical and financial services industries, so he knows what it's like to be a client trying to leverage technology and technology partners to grow a business. We spent some time learning about Jody's background and how he got to Incentra, what problems and challenges he's trying to solve there, and where he thinks IT is doing a good job serving businesses, and where it isn't. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jody Elkins. Jody, welcome to Cut the Shit. How you doing today? (laughs) Good. Brian, how are you? I'm doing okay. So where are you today? I can't tell from the background there. Usually I see a different background when I talk to you, so I'm, I'm not sure where you are today. Yeah, I am in my executive suite space that I rent. Uh, gets me out of the house once in a while, and uh, and it's a horrible background that I have. That's why I have the Incentra background on. I got you. I got you. So for for the audience's edification, um, Jody works for a company which we'll talk more about. Um, that is a partner of Plows. So I know Jody, and I know of his company. That's part of why I'm so excited to have him on today. But we'll get into that a little bit more uh, in just a minute. Um, so before we jump into the sort of the meat of it, what um, have you been traveling much lately? Have you gone anywhere? Uh, no business travel, unfortunately. Um, I'm, I'm ready to get back into that. Um, but I did do a Cabo trip a couple of weeks ago. So I met a bunch of friends down there. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a blast. It was, it was nice to finally, uh, finally get out. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now you're based in Phoenix. I assume you flew from Phoenix to Cabo. What is that like an hour or two flights? Not too far, right? No, it's great. It's an hour and 45 minutes. Easy. Love it. Nice. Nice. Um, so again, before we get started, I I like to ask one kind of little sort of, uh, rando question, if you will, but, um, I have a few of them that I use, but this is one I kind of like for folks like you. And that's, if you had to pick, what is your favorite piece of technology that you own and use right now? (laughs) um it's it's one i'm not using right now but it's the 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 blue snowball microphone i love it it's on my desk at home it it, that along with crisp audio i don't know if you've heard of that i haven't what's crisp audio k-r-i-s-p so it's awesome it takes out um all the background noise so it focuses in on your on your voice only so i've had when i have crisp on and my snowball I can be on a call like this and my dogs can be barking and no one will hear them. Wow. Okay. So I need to look into that because I have a dog that might actually bark during this call. So we'll, we, we shall see. Um, but I have this $7,500 mic here that I use that what it sounds as good as what I hear on the radio. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing to me the the, the cost of how much the cost has come down for this kind of equipment. It's amazing. 
I always watch, I always like watching that for any piece of technology over a period of time, right? Like flat screen TVs are the easy ones, right? Sure. How expensive sure. those used to be. And now you can pick them up for a hundred bucks. Yeah. They practically give them to you, you know, so it feels like it anyway. So. Especially at Super Bowl time. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's get to the main event. Um, to get us started, uh, get us started, give us a quick thumbnail sketch on your background and kind of how you got started in technology. Yeah, so uh, kind of a funny story, uh, interesting to me and funny to me anyway. Um, I was a psych major in college, and um, and I exhausted every penny that I had uh, about four months before I graduated. I was living in a fraternity house when I graduated, had no job, had no money, and uh, and and just had to take a job real quickly. Well, that led me over the next couple of years. That led me into technology. This was in the early '90s. Um, and and I at first I was a support technician um, and um, and and doing sales at the same time of Unix turnkey systems of all things um, as a so- small software developer in Southern California. So I used to sell um, uh, Unix turnkey systems to steel distributors, metal systems uh, distributors out there okay. <clears throat> all across the country in Canada. And and as I was selling it and traveling, I was just I was really young. I was 21, 22 years old, and and I didn't usually have support with me. And so I ended up learning a lot of technology on the fly because I'd go to these customers' places trying to upsell them and they would tell me about all the problems they were having with the existing. Can't buy anything new until what I have works. A hundred percent. So I got real good real fast at fixing some of those things. And I, and I, turns out I loved it, right? Um, <clears throat> had no engineering background, had no technical background in my life. I've never been that type of person. I, I, I really loved it. And so I started down this path in, in IT, really from a support perspective initially. And, uh, and, but at a time when everyone in IT was propeller heads, like they were the, the, the typical guys and gals that were in the basement, you know, that you didn't want to talk to people, but they knew how to code. And they didn't want to talk to anybody either. Right, and right. they didn't want to talk to anybody either. And, and so, so me being more of a, social, you know, I wouldn't call myself an extrovert. I'm actually an introvert, but I can act it. I can act an extrovert quite well. <clears throat> I found myself in, in a lot of situations and just rapidly kind of moving up the ranks. Um, I forced myself for a number of years to stay technical, but, um, but ultimately uh, took over the CIO role for an organization that was rapidly growing. When I started, we had about 300 users, two different small companies. Uh, and five years later, we had about 8,000 users, 10 different companies. And that was really where I got my chops, both from a technical perspective. I was the senior most technical lead in the organization and the CIO at the same time. So I learned a tremendous amount over those five to six years. <clears throat> I didn't have time for much else, to be honest, um, but it was it was a great experience. And from there, I, I made the choice uh, that company was acquired. I then went on to uh, to really stay managerial focused. So, so then I had roles like you know uh, senior VP of services, uh, ultimately CIO for a FinServe co- uh, organization and healthcare. That was my last stint on the client side. Uh, up until 2010, I was a CIO for a healthcare organization in the Northwest. Very very interesting, broad range of things. Healthcare was anybody that's been in healthcare. There's a lot of interesting things that happened there. Sure. Um, and in 2010, I just made the decision to go to the dark side, as I call it, and that's the partner community, the channel. And that was really kind of born out of um, 
uh, frustrations, quite frankly, that I had as a CIO and I learned through other groups other CIOs had, and that was finding the right partners, right? I, I talked to a lot of partners and vendors out there that, that you know, daily that t- would tell me consistently that they were focused on partnership. And, and what I continuously found with a handful of exceptions, I continually found that that really wasn't true. And I, and I didn't understand why, because in my mind, it was so easy to connect the dots. If you're really a true partner, you're going to make money. Our company, you know, my organization is going to do well and accomplish the business goals that we have. And I'm personally going to do well. So why is this so difficult? I really didn't understand it. That led to a lot of conversations with the owner of a, of a Citrix Platinum partner in Southern California over a couple of years, quite frankly. And, uh, and then ultimately, I went to run that organization. And, uh, and I got my chops over the next six years um, as the managing director for a bar that I took from about $10 million, about $45 million. Um, so rapid growth, uh, high growth, and without hiring many salespeople. So what I learned in all of that was how funky the channel is, how difficult it really is for a VAR um, to, to be successful, all the competing goals and challenges that exist. Um, but we were able to grow that by focusing on the customer. I didn't hire any salespeople until the last couple of years I was there. So really just focusing on customers. Um, and that took me to 2016. And then uh, not long after I left there, I started uh, in Centra in the U.S., which is an extension of originally a, a, an Australian-based company. Our headquarters is in Sydney. Uh, and I launched this business here, um, here in, in the States. And our business, interestingly enough, kind of combines all of those things. And we're focused on helping partners like Plow and others be more successful with their customers by doing, look, my philosophy is really simple, Brian. You may have heard me say this before. Do the right things, do things right. Apply that to everything and anything in your life, right? Pretty simple, right? Yeah, simple to say, not always simple to execute. Correct, absolutely. That's what you have to get up every day and work on, right? Yeah. Yeah, you do, it's, it's a constant commitment, right? So, so you talked about the switch from the client side to what you call the dark side, right? The partner side or the outsource side, um, solution side from outside to in. Um, when you did that, what, or, or, or let's take a step back. When you were a CIO and we, or when you were on the client side, what were, what were some things that, con, that, that consultants and partners did that you really liked? Um, reps. Uh, there were a handful of account reps that really listened um, and, and, and really wanted to help and really went to bat within their organizations to do things, to think outside the box at the end of the day. So the partners that I that I really sort of gravitated to and, and worked a lot with were those that were willing to think outside the outside of their box, right? And in hindsight now, or foresight, you know how you look at it, um, knowing how the channel works now, there's so many competing priorities, particularly for a bar that represents multiple products, right? Multiple vendors. Yeah, I was gonna say, can you give us an example of of what that might look like? Because not everybody is as intimately familiar as you and I are with what that might look like. Yeah, good point. So look, if there's a, a manufacturer out there that a bar represents, they have quotas that they have to, let's say it's any server manufacturer, I'm going to stay away from ma- naming any specific ones, right? The server manufacturer, hardware manufacturer, right? Um, they have quotas that they have to hit, servers, storage, networking, whatever the case may be in order to maintain status with that manufacturer. Status with that manufacturer means more money, more support, more marketing funds, all those types of things that helps a VAR 
grow and helps a bar deliver value, right? So those things are really important to a bar. What happens oftentimes is you have a project. So for me, for instance, I was building, uh, I was, I was delivering the healthcare organization. I was delivering a brand new from the ground up greenfield citrix delivery mechanism. Um, you know, some of the vendors there and some of the manufacturers were really putting an all-encompassing solutions, storage, networking, servers, all a single brand, right? Um, and, and I didn't really want to do that. That's what the VAR was pushing. But I, I like to piecemeal different types of technologies to take advantage of different things like in storage that that manufacturer maybe didn't have the capability of. So uh, oftentimes VARs won't allow you to do that. Push back, they make it difficult for you to do that. Um, the ones that made that difficult, I didn't tend to do a whole lot of work with. What I wanted was an account rep, an account team that would listen to me, understand what I'm trying to accomplish, use their knowledge across a broad range of solutions and come back and say, okay, here's a solution that's actually going to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish in the short and medium term. Gotcha. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was going to ask, what is it that they do that you really dislike? And you just sort of said that. So um, these sort of packaged solutions uh, that were really in the service of meeting, you know, uh, certain business, you know, certain volume levels necessary to maintain relationships, which totally makes sense as a value added real estate or reseller, you get that. And you were on that side. So, so tell me about when you went to the VAR side, how did you deal with that particular tension? <laughs> um, it was a massive learning curve, first of all, because um, I'm, I'm naturally pretty straightforward. Um, that did not bode well for me in the early days with those manufacturers. Um, but I, I learned quick. Um, yeah, look, at the end of the day, um, I stood up for my customers. And, and I, I taught my team to stand up for my customers. And what that means is simply this. Listen. Listen to what your customer's asking. Come back to any manufacturer and give them a valid argument of why you need to go this different direction for your customer. I'll back that 100%. So I didn't make a whole lot of friends in the manufacturing space, but I also didn't create a lot of enemies because I'd never created a situation that wasn't true. And I was never not transparent about that situation. My goal was always and still will always be customer satisfaction. What does the customer need? And the only way you're ever going to figure that out is by listening and listening really closely and often. So come back to the manufacturers, give them that that. Uh, that justification and they don't like it, but they dealt with it. Right. And did, did you end up rationalizing manufacturers? I mean, did, did that, did that call the list of, of partners in that sense? It, it called the list of partners that we spent a lot of time with. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't knock any partners out. In fact, we added partners um, when I was there. Um, but the partners I was adding, it allowed me to be very transparent up front and say, look, here's why you want to be working with us, right? And, and having the background as a CIO and be able to talk about the challenges as a CIO working with VARs and manufacturers gave me a lot of credibility with those, not everybody, but a lot of the leaders in those manufacturers. Because at the end of the day, they want to do the same thing. It's not like there's this evil bunch of people in manufacturers and 
you know, they're no. trying to make money. They're trying to do their job. And they think the best way to do that is a holistic solution, for instance. But they're not, they're, they're myopically focused in that part of the solution, right? Or, or their solution as opposed to a bar that has visibility or a CIO has visibility across a lot of different platforms and, and manufacturers. Right, right. Yeah, and you know, you and I have talked before because I'm a, a reformed CIO as well, um, that trying to always remember what it's like to be in that seat and to think about what, how you look at the world and what the problems are um, within your organization that you're trying to solve I think it's really helpful if you're on the other side, right? And it's not always easy um, to, to keep that in mind, I think, depending on, to your point, around these competing priorities. So, yeah, go ahead. No, I, just, I was just agreeing with you 100%. Gotcha. So so when you when you went over again, went over to the outsource side, the partner side, what, what did you tell yourself, you know, something you were never going to do um, once you were there, uh, you know, as you thought of it when you were moving from CIO to, to the partner side? Mm. It's a good question. Um, I was never going to sacrifice my principles. I was never going to sacrifice my principles for a deal. That's, that's the number one thing. Um, I'm not completely principled. I'm not this crazy principled guy, but I have principles that are extremely important to me. And I was never going to not do the right thing for a customer. I was never going to not be transparent with a customer about pros and cons around anything they wanted to do. Uh, or anything, any question they asked. Um, my whole goal, and this is the only reason I went to the partner side at the time, is because I thought, I had a theory that by doing that, by listening intently, really partnering, really focusing on transparency and honesty and integrity with customers, that you would actually do two things. You would help those customers personally and professionally in their careers and their organizations. And at the same time, you would grow your business and make money. I believe that. I still believe that. And I've proven that true multiple times. Now, now what's, what's also true is that oftentimes by doing that, you will grow slower than you might otherwise. And from, a, you know, again, principles, I'm perfectly okay with that. Right. I'm, not, I'm not a greedy guy. Like, I don't, you know, I don't need to be rich. I want to be rich in fulfillment. I want to feel good about what I'm doing. Once I got to, to be about 40 years old, I, I talked about this a lot. I won't go into the whole thing, but around midlife crisis, I have this theory that, you know, we work so hard early in our lives with our families and you're trying to provide for our families. But you get to a point where you know you can always make enough money to be able to do that, right? To be able to provide the basics. And, and once you get there, for me, everything shifted because now money was not my number one priority. Now what becomes a number one priority is feeling good about what I do. Now families, right. You know, providing for my family's right behind that. And I think the people that really have trouble at that point, you know, those points in their lives aren't sort of recognizing those things and adjusting. A lot of people just stay in those careers and continue to make more and more and more money and are surprised that they're not getting satisfaction as a result of that. I'm not one of those guys. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I think that brings us to um, the transition point to Incentra. So tell us, you gave us a little bit on the front end, um, but give us a little more. Tell us about Incentra, sort of its background and its DNA. Yeah. So really interesting organization. Um, uh, we have a really unique business model. And I, I first became uh, aware of Incentra in 2016. 
I was doing a bit of consulting on my own. I had started, I was focusing on helping partners um, in a different way. Um, and, and through a friend of a friend, I was introduced to uh, Ronnie Altit, who's our global CEO. He and I met in person in Phoenix. He happened to be here from Sydney. And, and, and we just, we gelled. He, I, he's, my, he's my professional wife, right? Like soulmate. Um, we just saw the industry the same way. We had, like I said before, a very similar background. So we've kind of seen the industry from all angles. Um, our, our, our philosophy and approach around leadership and culture was identical. Uh, those things are extremely important to us. Um, and so we really just matched. And I was really interested in the business model because what we do is all about the things I've been talking about. We help partners actually add that value to their customers. And, I, and I'll give you a good example. And I know you're familiar with this, Brian, because we do this with Plow to some degree, right? But um, if, for, for those that aren't familiar with a, with a VAR or the partner community, as a VAR, there are two problems that constantly exist from a services perspective. And that is number one, do you have, when you get an opportunity, do you have the right pre-sales resources to be able to go and, and help that customer figure out what the solution is and ultimately sell a solution? Problem number one, um, the VARs that are successful uh, over the long term generally get pretty good at that. Um, the second problem that is consistent is uh, the same problem on the delivery side. So now you've closed a deal customers oftentimes four or five, six month sales cycle. And then as soon as they sign, they want you to get started tomorrow. Right. Of course. And, and managing that is very, very difficult. Managing that pipe and managing your services capabilities is very difficult because you have people on the bench, you're losing money. Right. And if you have people overextended, your, your start times are delayed far too much and customers aren't happy. So it's a real, it's, it's, it's a fine line that you have to walk, as you know, all of those, those challenges are exacerbated for any partner that wants to then start a new practice, right? So if, if a customer is, let's, a partner is, let's say, a Cisco vendor and they focus on networking, but now they want to start a Microsoft practice, their, their choices and how they start that practice is very limited, and they all involve typically seven-figure investments. Well, for a small VAR, that's a lot of money, and that's a big risk. Um, so not really good options. That's what we do. We solve those two problems for, for VARs. So we are an extension of the VARs team. We're completely non-competitive with the channel. That's the only way, we, that's what makes us most unique is we don't sell product. We don't sell licenses. We exist solely to help our partners be more successful. Got it. Got it. And which that's, you know, a couple of the follow-on questions in my mind were, you know, what was it that attracted you to Incentra? Obviously, the differentiation around the the model and uh, some of the shared uh, shared culture and approach to leadership were there. Um, what else? I mean, are, are there other things about the way you guys do business that you feel like are differentiated in a way beyond just we only serve the we, you know, we only serve the channel? We don't also sell product or services directly to clients. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we provide pre-sales at no charge. So we think about partnership very simply, shared risk, shared reward. If, if that doesn't exist, you might have a fantastic relationship. At the end of the day, it's a transactional relationship. And that's not, that doesn't help partners out there and ultimately doesn't help customers. So what's really interesting to me is we allow, we, we 
shared risk, shared reward. We put our money where our mouth is by investing in pre-sales. So our partners can simply, we, we sales enable them. They go out, identify an opportunity, and they come to us just like they would come to their own pre-sales resources. And we drive that entire pre-sales process with them. Or in some cases, on their behalf. I have partners that, we, that, that, that trust us so much, they just hand it over to us and we drive it all on their behalf. Um, so we have a lot of flexibility, but that's really where the secret sauce is because that, that's what makes us anything but a subcontractor, right? You can, it, partners know this, they can go out and sell deals and they use subcontractors as one of the solutions to actually fill that gap from a resources perspective. But that's not, it's, it's risky for a partner. It's risky for a customer. Customers tend not to like that. Nobody really likes to do it. And, and oftentimes if, if a sub is available, it's sometimes oftentimes a reason for that, right? So it's a lot of risk involved there. You can eliminate all of that risk uh, by working with us with zero investment. So I have partners that want to start a new practice, let's say Microsoft, they don't have to make that seven figure investment. They don't have to invest a dime. They can work with us right out of the gate and through that process determine, number one, do they have a market? right? Can they build that practice? They don't have to decide whether they want to build it or not at that point. We don't have any requirements. They can build a practice while they're working with us. They can decide not to build a practice. And I have partners that sort of fall into both camps. Right. Quite frankly, I have a lot of partners that start out wanting to build their own practice when they start working with us. But quite frankly, you know, when they can make decent net margin on what we're doing with zero investment, um, they tend not to they tend to focus on other areas of their business and while, while, while what they're doing with us grows. Right. Allowing sort of a highest and best use approach, right. Around what you deliver. That makes sense. It makes sense. Um, so we've talked a lot about sort of you and your background and sort of your career to this point in some in Centra. Let, let's, let's transition a little bit to sort of the industry as a whole. I mean, we've, we've talked some about it, but let's let's kind of get a little more specific. Um, and in terms of what you're seeing, in terms of how the industry is, you know, is really helping businesses solve problems. What, in your mind, what are the most interesting one or two things happening right now that you feel like are really either currently changing the game or may change the game for businesses in terms of in terms of solving real business problems? Yeah, great question. Um, there are so many potential answers, but I, I'll say for me. It's, it's security wrapped by user adoption. And, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. The collaboration tools that are available today, so solutions like Microsoft 365, uh, for instance, just as an example, they are so powerful and so easy to use. Um, also complex on the back end. Um, that ease of collaboration while really, really helpful to users around the world, creates an incredible security risk. At a time when security, malware, crypt, you know, crypto locks, all those types of things are not only prevalent, but increasing in frequency and, and significance, right? It's a real balance for, an or, for organizations. It's difficult for organizations to balance those sure. things. How do you balance security and user adoption, all those types of things? And that's what I find most interesting because the, the suites now, I was just having this conversation yesterday with another partner. Technology itself has become so central in our lives, right? Um, you, you, there's almost, 
nothing you can do in your daily life without some touching some part of technology, right? Sure. Some of us get away maybe for a few days camping when we don't have connectivity. It's fantastic, but you always come back, right? Right. But what's also interesting is in those within technology itself, the solutions are becoming more of a collective ecosystem. They're integrated so tightly, and Microsoft 365 is an excellent example of that. All of those solutions are integrated so tightly, you can't think about one without the other. You know, it wasn't very long ago you could install Exchange and you didn't have to worry about too many other things. Well, you can't. You can't install, you can't engage or adopt Exchange Online today without thinking about a number of other things, unless you want, you're not concerned about security. Right, right. right? And, and so, so it's, it's a real conundrum. It's a lot of work that we're doing today. But what's interesting to me about that is as we solve those challenges with customers, their productivity goes through the roof. And they can now look at how they do their business in entirely different ways. And that's exciting to me. That's why I got on the client side to begin with. That was my favorite part is seeing those things come to fruition. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And, that, and I, I think that's probably, I mean, if you think about the amount of energy and time and effort that's going into solving, because that's a problem that technology has created, right? This idea of user adoption and ease of use and potential security problems, right? I mean, it's exact, you know, it all comes back to the, sort of the nature of the way the internet works is by definition, not secure, right? It wasn't built that way. And so we've layered technologies on top of it that take advantage of its distribution capabilities and its ease of accessibility. And the security part's tough because of that, right? There, there's a, a natural tension between the two. So, so I would agree straddling, you know, trying to solve that straddle is, is certainly an interesting, uh, a, an opportunity for us as an industry to, to help, help customers deal with that. Um, let's, let's look on the negative side of it. Where, where do you feel like the IT industry is, is failing companies right now? Where are we missing in terms of problems that are sort of crying out to be solved that either we can't solve or we say we are solving, but we're really not? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think it's a bit of the same, right? Um, I, I, I think you just hit on it before you asked me the question in that we're creating solutions that are inherently insecure, right? And so we're exacerbating a problem and then creating a solution for that problem and then extending the capabilities that creates another problem and sometimes competing with those things at the same time. So I, I, I think from a broader sense, one of the things that I'll, I'll say, it's not exactly an answer to your question, but I'll, in a broader sense, one of my concerns, just from a human perspective, is that we're depending too much upon technology. And I think we're, we're losing a human connection that's, that's extremely important to our species. And I think for me, I think I'm seeing sort of the results of that, symptoms of that, in the global stage today, in American politics, I mean, you name it, the world from a human connection perspective is vastly different than it was even 20 years ago. And I think technology has played a huge part in that. So I'm concerned about how we manage the evolution of technology and the evolution of our species. I'm not convinced we're gonna be able to manage that really effectively. We haven't thus far, and I don't know what that means for us. Yeah, I have a, recent college grad she's been out almost two years now um and entered the work workforce and spent the first almost year of her career 
in a traditional office setting, um, is very small office, but she went every day and, and was face to face with her colleagues. And for now, for about six, eight months, she's been, she got a picked, got a promotion and is now working remote. She's working for a different office in the company. It's actually in San Francisco. Uh, she's in North Carolina. And I, I often, I mean, these are great technologies. I feel like you and I have built a, a pretty decent relationship um, and we've never actually met. We've only, we've only done video conference. So I'm optimistic from the, the ability for this technology to foster relationships, but I worry about the ability for people new to the workforce to be able to develop the way they need to, to be more successful long-term. And I, obviously that's the selfish thing. I'm thinking of my daughter in this particular case, but I worry and wonder have we as technology folks created enough solutions around that piece of the puzzle? I don't, I don't know the answer yet. I don't think anybody does. It's, it's, it's new. I mean, you know, FaceTime and zoom, these are not new, but we're using them in a way that we really never have for the last couple of years. That's for sure. Exactly right. And, 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 and to, I think you touched on this. If you look at the, the workforce from an age perspective now, right. That, that transition, um, transition is not the right word, that interconnection and those, those, the positive things you see in using the technology and the challenges, I think is directly related to age. To your point, we have all worked in offices before. You look at the new generations coming out of college and they're going to start remote work. And these are the same kids that have grown up on Xboxes and phones, right? And and literally grown up on phones. So their, their basis for connection to other people is vastly different than yours and mine. And I don't know, I don't know what that's going to mean in the whole scheme of things here. They're going to start using these same tools, but they don't have the background to, to be able to, um, I don't know, whitewash it a bit like you and I, we're used to, we know what it feels like to be standing in the same room, having a beer somewhere and developing a relationship. So we use those same sort of tools in a call like this. I don't know what it means for the younger generation. And, and I don't either. I mean, maybe we're just having a okay boomer moment. I'm not sure. You know, my daughter is, my daughter's pretty good socially um, and, and seems to be able to, na- to navigate. So I, I think we'll see. I don't, I don't know that anybody really knows, but I know that this technology that we're using is difficult for what I would call, um, accidental interactions, you know, the idea of being in the office where you could bump into someone and ask them a question that you were just thinking about, or some sort of dumb conversation came up about whatever. And it, and it spawned a thought. Um, that's the kind of thing I wonder about. Absolutely. Um, I used to joke all the time. Uh, my first CIO role, we were building an infrastructure from the ground up rapidly. There was a point where we were opening an office every 36 hours. You could imagine the amount of effort and work that was going on, the amount of change that was taking place. I used to say that organization's technology was built in the back of the office because we'd go outside to smoke a cigarette or have a beer late at night. And that's where we would come up with the best ideas. Right just hanging out. And that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Not as frequently. So a couple final questions before we close out. Um, obviously recruiting right now is a challenge for everyone. Uh, how are you guys going about finding talented people to help you? I know you're growing. Um, so, so talk to me a little bit about that. What are you guys seeing out there? Is that in, in that regard? 
I'll tell you, it's, it's one of my biggest challenges right now. Uh, it is tremendously time consuming um, and, and difficult. So what we're doing, one thing we've always done, culture is number one in our organization. Our people, we're, we don't just say it, our people are the most important thing to our business uh, for all kinds of reasons I won't go into. Um, so culture is huge. We, we promote, you see our social media posts about, you know, culture and what we do around leadership, all those types of things. So we promote that a lot. That has always been successful for us in keeping some kind of pipe, but because of our growth globally, we sort of exhausted that pipeline of people that we, we knew we wanted to work with and they wanted to work with us. Right. right. Um, so we're, we're, I'm using recruiters with lackluster success, um, I, if you go and looked at my, looked at my LinkedIn profile, you'll see now hiring and linking to, you know, we're doing that. I've got a pretty decent network. Um, and so uh, we get some out of that, um, anything and everything we can do, but, but, but yes, just yesterday on our executive team huddle, we spent, that was an hour and a half on our executive team huddle, eight executives globally. That was the primary topic of conversation. How are we going to continue to drive and scale at the, at the ability we have at this point? Uh, without being able to, um, without our existing recruitment strategy, not facilitating what right. we need. So it's a struggle. Yeah. And you're not geographically consta- constrained, but that's a, that's a plus and a minus, right? I mean, in some ways it makes a, it's a bigger pond to try to fish in, which is good and bad because you got to find the fish. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. I'm not familiar. So I have to, you know, I'm not familiar with a lot of regions on the flip side remote capability is not new to us. We've been right. remote from the very beginning in, in the Americas and in the UK. So um, we know how to work remotely. We know how to build culture remotely. We've had having a lot of success with that. COVID has made that even more difficult because we, we don't get together at all. Right. Probably used to do meetings at least, yeah, I would say once or twice a year at, at minimum, right? Maybe quarterly, depending on where people are. That's right. That's right. So that's gone out the window. We're doing them virtually. Not the same. Not the same. No, no. I don't think anybody would say that this is, we figured out how to do events <laughs> via, via teams. <laughs> I'll tell you this though. We did a really interesting one in December. We did, and I'm not joking. We did a magic show over teams, an interactive magic show over teams. That was phenomenal. It worked. It worked. It was fantastic. We wow. all had a blast and it was a small little group out of Australia that did it for my team here in the U.S., fantastic good for them that's interesting because like I, I think everyone is struggling with that how do you you know how do you have some semblance of what it feels like to be at an event when you're not you know yeah um last kind of specific question about you guys and and it relates to a larger sort of topic but what role if any is data analytics playing in your business not in the industry or what your customers are doing but at Incentro, are you guys doing anything around the data analytics side? Not significantly. Um, our growth, quite transparently, has gotten in the way of that uh, around AI and machine learning in particular, right? We really want to be on the front end of that, um, but our growth is, is hindering our ability to do that. Um, internally, we're doing more and more data analytics uh, to understand how our partners think and operate. Um, you know, we, now we've got globally, I think we're approaching about 600 partners. Um, and, and so it's not a huge number, but it's enough to, you know, enough data points over 12, 12 years that we can draw some correlation. So we're doing some of that, um, marketing, our marketing department has, has really uh, evolved over the last couple of years. And so we're using different tools to, to identify, 
end user customers that we can that we can operate with on behalf of partners and so it's it's interesting not exciting i would say gotcha gotcha i think that's i i would imagine that's that's the answer for a lot of folks in the sort of the core it industry when i think about ourselves we're the same way i mean we're we're not doing a lot from a data analytics standpoint i mean we're doing some things but for the most part unless unless that's what you do as your business it it hasn't really gotten there i don't think that i mean there's just not a ton of conversation about it from what i can tell so i was just curious if you guys were different so, so. yeah uh, it sounds like we're we're the same so last question you know when you think about the future of the it industry i mean it's hard to see how you could be over bullish i mean obviously this isn't going anywhere uh, in fact i have a hard time seeing it becoming less prevalent um, in in our daily lives and in the companies that we work for having said that how do you think about those that future and, and its terms i mean is it all systems go or in your mind, are there storm clouds on the horizon? How do you think about that future um, in your perspective? Yeah, I think it depends on who you are and how open-minded you are, because I think there will be storm clouds for a lot of partners out there and a lot of lot of pieces of this of the IT industry. Um, but I think those storm clouds will primarily be for those individuals that that are a bit closed-minded, aren't open to um, to, to looking down the road. Um, and, and helping in different ways and learning new solutions. You know, the older we get, the harder it is to learn new things. Um, and the more responsibilities we have, the harder it is to find time to look at those things. All of that contributes. So I think there will be some storm clouds. From a general perspective, though, I have a really positive outlook. I'm, like I said earlier, I'm concerned about the human aspect of that. At the same time, I don't, you know, I'm 53. I, I, I don't think I'm going to have to worry so much about that. Uh, the next generation, I think, will. And, and so from a pure technology industry perspective, yeah, all systems go. Machine learning, AI is going to take us into areas that we can't even fathom at this point. And it's going to do that relatively quickly. You know, over the last 30 years, you probably already know this, uh, technology, uh, the, the rate of change increases exponentially um, every decade. Sure. So, you know, um, it, it's, yeah, I, I, I'm excited about that. I think I think we can write our own ticket as long as we understand, pay attention, listen, and are willing to continually willing to change. Awesome. Well, on that note, um, I always like to wrap up with something personal. So uh, I just wanted to get a couple of things um, out on that front. Um, can you tell us about something um, that you've watched or consumed recently that you found found interesting? Uh yeah, um, the hell's the name of it? Um, I just watched on Apple Plus uh, the Moon series. Um, oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I and I can't remember the name uh, of it. Me either. Me either. So, uh, it's fantastic though, and I, I really enjoyed. It. I ended up watching two seasons over a couple of days, really, because it it. It foreshadowed in my mind. It foreshadowed a lot of what Elon Elon Musk talks about with regards to Mars colonization. Um, it really put a fine point on human interaction and politics and all the things that interest me on a daily basis now. Um, uh, exploration. It was fascinating to me. Um, so I hope. I, I think it's over. I haven't done the research to see if they're going to continue to do it, but it was. It's probably the best show I've, I've watched in a long time. Okay. Cool. Cool. Um, all right. Last question. Tell us about your first technology memory as a child. 
could be a gaming system or early stage computer or rector set or something like that. What's something you vividly recall? Uh, vividly on TV. <laughs> um, yeah, that and uh, what I spent the most time on was my Atari, my the original Atari, you know, system. Um, I was an I was an expert at Super Breakout. I okay. could go to town on that. My first Atari game that I really remember was Adventure. I remember that. Yeah. So that was that's that's going way back. So you remember when Pitfall came out? Oh yeah, Pitfall Harry. Exciting. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Uh, we're going, we're, we're dating ourselves, Jody. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll wrap right there and let Jody get back to it. Uh, Jody, thanks again for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, glad you came on cut the shit and we appreciate the partnership. Yeah. Thanks Brian. Me too. This was fun. Appreciate Take it. Care. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you were enjoying the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you would become a subscriber wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could rate and review the show on Apple podcasts and Spotify, that would really help us out. Or you can just go old school and tell your friends, your family, your colleagues, and tell anybody else who you think might want to hear something like this to listen in. If you're on social media, make sure to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at cuttheshit underscore pod. We are also on TikTok, at cuttheshitpod, all one word, where we post lots of clips from the podcast. And last but not least, you can also watch the YouTube version of the show on our YouTube channel, at Plow Networks. Until next time, take care and have a great day.